Okay, Second Peter chapter 2. You can turn there. Second Peter chapter 2 is not a chapter you hear taught a lot. Um, if you're looking for uplifting and cheery chapters in the Bible, Second Peter chapter 2 doesn't probably rank in the top 10. But it is part of the Word of God for a reason. It's important that we consider the whole counsel of God. It has an important message for us. Second Peter is a call to be steadfast in the knowledge of God, as we've been hearing yesterday, from, or yesterday, last week from Larry. Um, steadfast in the knowledge of God, uh, both in understanding Him and in the attitudes and behaviors that flow from that knowledge. The danger and why he brings this up is because there are false teachers who are going to try to distract us from that. They corrupt both the facts and your character. So specifically, they are arrogant and ignorant in their false teaching. And they pursue and promote a sensual lifestyle, sensual indulgence of the sinful nature. So after emphasizing the truth in chapter 1, Peter vividly exposes these false teachers in chapter 2 and provides several proofs that God will judge them and will rescue the righteous. So I'd like to quickly review some of the truth that Peter is really hammering in chapter 1, just so we can see the contrast in chapter 2. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay, so 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 and 4, seeing that his divine power, his God's divine power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We've got it. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The corruption in the world by lust is something to be escaped, that we have escaped. That's key in chapter 2. So as you skim down the rest of part of next part of chapter 1 there, Peter's saying, so knowing this, follow through with your attitudes, your actions. Let your character be molded by these wonderful truths and this wonderful relationship with God himself. Don't be blind and short-sighted. Don't forget these things. You've been purified from your sins. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. So do you already know these things? Anybody already know these things? That's great. If you already know these things, we probably do already know these things. Well, good. Um, Are we solid, established in the truth? Probably many of us are, right? Well, we still need to be reminded, don't we? Verse 13, Peter was very big on reminding people who already knew these things. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, just as we were reading from a different version to help stir us up. We hear things too many times said exactly the same way. Maybe we start to get dull about it. We need to be stirred up by way of reminder knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So before he dies, he wants to make sure this is done. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. And we thank the Lord for that, because now we have it as well here in Scripture. 
For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And this is a big thing to remember. We're not talking theory here. We're talking eyewitness accounts of, you know, not clever tales. So important to remember the, the assurance we can have of the truth of Scripture. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Though we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So this is the encouragement. This is what we are to be doing. Um, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. When you remember the Jewish prophets under the law, if they were by an act of human will to make a prophecy, well, that was a death penalty. If they happen to be wrong, then you know that wasn't from God, and they say they're speaking from God. Bad news. But so he's, it's interesting that he would put this in there because what he's saying, it seems to me, is in a sense, I'm willing to swear by my life that what I'm saying is the word of God. Okay. So Peter has established there in chapter one this great value of a true knowledge of God and what his ultimate plan is. And also the point that as we remember the true knowledge of God, it affects our lives. It affects how we think. Um, it affects our behavior, our perspective for everything in time and eternity. So now into chapter 2. He's going to contrast the truth of the knowledge of God and his magnificent promises with the temptations of those false teachers who pervert or deny the truth and then the destructive behavior that their teachings lead to. And then the terrible end of such people. So let's read chapter 2 with just a few comments as we go through. Second Peter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And now Peter is going to refer to several Old Testament um, stories to illustrate and prove his point about the evil lies of the false teachers and what their end is. So we're going to get angels who sinned, um, the ancient world and Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot, and then eventually Balaam all here in this one chapter. And unfortunately, because you guys probably want lunch and supper, we're not going to be able to go into all of those here today. But hopefully you have some familiarity, familiarity with these things. So first of all, in verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and incidentally, most people would say that this is referring either to the fall of Satan and his demons or to an episode in Genesis chapter 6 where the sons of God were, went into the daughters of men. Um, and I'm not going to get into that today. But the point here is that angels sinned, 
and they're judged, they're being held for judgment. Verse 5, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example of those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the righteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Just one thing I thought was interesting um, in these first three stories that are referred to, it's striking that when God is judging people, he saves a remnant. Not so with angels. You'll notice in verse 4, there's no remnant of the angels mentioned there, the angels' sin. I'm reminded of Hebrews 2.16. It says, For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. So we can praise God for his grace to mankind. Why should he have given grace to us when he didn't take it? It's his grace. Well, Peter now gives us a further description of the false teachers um, here and uh, their behavior. Daring, so we're in the middle of verse 10 here. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Just briefly, we don't have to be as far gone as these false teachers to still struggle with some of these sins. Okay? Having eyes full of adultery. That's, remember what Christ said about adultery. If you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. So, just having even that phrase in your head can be a catch. Wait a minute, what am I doing? I don't want to be like those guys in Second Peter 2. Right? Heart trained in greed. Well, that, again, if you feel a temptation toward greed, um, you don't want to go down... Don't be training your heart in that direction. Don't be like these guys in Second Peter 2, loving the wages of unrighteousness. We might wish we had more talking donkeys around to rebuke, rebuke us when we need it. <laughs> but, um, but here's a, a thought that if you do receive a rebuke from somebody that you respect about as much as a donkey, it may still be the Lord talking through them. <laughs> you know, not, not everybody... Um, it doesn't have to be some great preacher or somebody to rebuke you. If somebody says something and you feel rebuke from it, consider if the Lord is working in your heart in that way. 
Okay, verse 17. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. I think it's clear that these false teachers are on their way to hell. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. 1 Corinthians 6.12 tells us in another passage of sensual desires, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So in our series on Galatians, I think it's interesting to think back. Um, We saw that we are called to freedom, right? We're called to be free, and we're warned not to be entangled again in a yoke of bondage. Now, in Galatians, the slavery that we are at risk to be entangled in was the law, the law. The law of Moses, especially. Now, here in chapter 2 of Second Peter, just like in 1 Corinthians 6, the slavery is a sensual indulgence of our sinful nature. And how twisted, think how twisted worldly thinking is to suppose that slavery to sin is actually freedom. They think they're free. They're slaves. The Pharisees of Jesus' day said, oh, we've never been slaves to anybody, right? So this is not a new issue or a new problem. It's natural, natural worldly thinking. Well, Peter calls us to see through that wrong thinking and the false promises of the false teachers and truly live free in Christ. Remember those magnificent promises of God that we can rely on. Okay, verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... They are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. There's a principle I think we see in Scripture that the measure of judgment that somebody experiences in hell is related to the amount of light that they have rejected. Um, These folks had a good, clear knowledge of truth, and they rejected it. Same thing as the Pharisees. They opposed Jesus, remember? And they certainly had no excuse for not knowing the Scripture. Um, The cities that saw most of Jesus' miracles, they had a lot of light that they were exposed to, and Jesus denounces them. You can read about that principle in Matthew 11, 20-24, read about the cities that saw Jesus' miracles and did not repent, what he says about them. Matthew 23, you can read about the woes on the scribes and Pharisees that he calls down. Um, Okay, verse 22. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Now, some people wonder, reading through this chapter, um, if these false teachers were perhaps truly saved at some point in the past and then either lost their salvation or the terrible judgments we read about here in Second Peter 2 are somehow God's discipline of his children. Um, both of those are wrong. Ideas are erroneous. Um, scripture is clear, first of all, that a saved person cannot lose their salvation. 
And so it's typically somebody who's convinced that a saved person cannot lose their salvation who will then say, well, I guess he must not have lost his salvation, so this must be some kind of God's discipline thing. Well, no, that's not the case either. Um, Okay, so what is going on here then in this chapter? Um, The reason, by the way, that people would tend to think maybe these were saved people is because in chapter 2, verse 1, they denied the master who bought them. Um, or in verse 20, uh, after they escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So the, ten- the thought is to look at those passages and think, oh, these must be saved people. Well, I think their end demonstrates they're clearly not. They were not saved. They are um, they're people who knew and understood the truth and rejected it. Um, took advantage of some of the blessings associated with it, at least initially, but then they're twisting it, and they never truly place their faith in Christ. And I think we see that very clearly here in verse 22. Um, We read that uh, a a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. So what we see is that there was no spiritual birth. There was no new birth. Um, There was no transformation. The dog is still a dog. Thou is still a sow, okay? So these are not people who have been transformed by Christ. And they're going right back to where they came from because that's what the old nature does. And that's all they have is the old nature. Okay, now on a little different topic, I would like to caution us. Consider this chapter as a whole. It is a danger, especially in this time that's very divisive in our culture, very shrill, a lot going on that way. It's very tempting, potentially, to anybody who disagrees with us on some point of doctrine to end up putting them into Second Peter 2 and say, you're one of those false teachers, okay? That's a danger. I'm saying, don't do that, okay? I'm hoping I'm, I'm clear about that. Um, the way that can happen is you can take just about any doctrine, make some logical deductions from it, and end up... End up in heresy, okay? So if somebody disagrees with a doctrine that you feel very strongly about, but it's not a doctrine that affects whether a person's saved or not, you can still take that doctrine and say, well, if you believe that, that means if that were true, that would mean this is true, which would mean that this is true, and that would mean this is true, and this is clearly heretical. So you are a Second Peter 2 person, false teacher, okay? And that is a natural thing to do. And it is not right. Um, I'm going to give an example here because this chapter happens to have one of the verses that I think most clearly goes against the doctrine of limited atonement. Um, Just briefly, the doctrine of limited atonement, this teaching, is the teaching that Christ's death, when he died on the cross, he was paying for the sins of those who would believe in him. And they usually call them, that that group of people, they call the elect, okay? Um, And so when Christ died, uh, he was paying for their sins, not the other people who would not believe. Limited atonement, that's the way it's being limited to those people, okay? Um, Now, some logic that they might say, I can't say I've heard somebody do this, but they could say if Christ paid for someone's sins and that person still ends up in hell, and if you're going to say that, then you're saying that Christ's blood was insufficient. It wasn't good enough. 
because how can that person go to hell if Christ actually paid for their sins? All right? So then, of course, they can go on and wax eloquent and say eventually, you know, things like Christ's blood isn't good enough, that's what you're saying, and uh, Christ was wrong when he said it was, it was finished, and there's no end to the terrible things that you can come up with. So anyway, somebody who believes in limited atonement will conclude that Christ's death was only ever intended to save or to pay for the sins of those believers or the elect, not for the unbelievers. Since this idea of Christ's blood failing to save somebody is anathema to them, not being good enough. Well, the idea has some logic to it, okay? And I think it's a very good example of reasoning logically to the wrong conclusion, which is, as Mark Sherwood would say, um, well, we can also be guilty of reasoning wrongly or reasoning logically to the wrong conclusion, even when we're starting with truth. So, for example, we would say that Christ's blood is sufficient for all and effective for believers, only believers. And we point to passages like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the world, the Son came for the world. That's why God, God loved the world, gave the world. You with me, right? Okay. That whoever believes, now we're talking a subset, in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So the giving of the Son was for the world. The ones who are saved are those who, are, who believe. So that's true. But then we could go on to reason that anyone who limits the value of Christ's blood to only those who believe as though God allowed more people to come into existence than his, the death of his son was capable of saving, uh, is preaching a small God and a small Savior, and he's unable to deal with the consequences of his own creation, and it's gone out of his control, and the very phrase limited atonement is, sounds heretical to us. Okay, We can go down that path, um, but that again is another line of reasoning, and there's many like that. You can go in all kinds of different directions. Um, it may seem right, but that's the kind of wisdom that I think James is talking about in James chapter 3, verse 15, that he describes as earthly, natural, and demonic. When we, when we react to those who disagree with us by ascribing to them the uncharitable deductions from what they actually believe, they don't believe the stuff over here that you're making the deductions to. They believe this up here. And you're saying, well, if you believe that... Well, if you ascribe this to them and insist that that's what they believe when they really don't, um, you're ultimately violating the ultimate truth that you think you're defending. Christ's death on the cross created a unity, a unity among all believers that Paul implores us to maintain in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are called to remain united in the Spirit so firmly that we can discuss those differences. We can disagree with each other in an iron sharpens iron kind of way that strengthens and deepens our unity, not obliterates it and cuts each other off. So we are one body, um, not just one body here in this assembly, but one body with all believers from the body of Christ from Pentecost until a rapture, the church age. And so as one body... We should act and feel like it, right, with our brothers and sisters. So with all of that in mind, and with mutual love in Christ toward our dear and respected brethren who hold the teaching of limited atonement, um, 
please note chapter 2 and verse 1 of Second Peter. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So as I see, as we've read through Second Peter 2, it seems abundantly clear that these false prophets are going to hell. So in what sense were they bought by the master? Well, to me, the obvious answer is there's no limited atonement. Christ's death was sufficient for every human being who ever lived or ever will live, even these horrible, hell-bound, false prophets, false teachers that Peter's denouncing so strongly. They will go to hell because they reject the free gift of salvation that is founded on this infinite value of Christ's blood. Another passage that I think um, is indicating that Christ's death is for everyone and effective for believers is in 1 Timothy chapter 4. You might want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. In verse 10 we read, for it, it, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So I believe that those passages contradict the idea of a limited atonement. In what sense is he a Savior of all men? Not that everybody's going to be saved. Scripture's clear. There's going to be people who go to hell. Second Peter chapter 2 tells us about some of them. Um, but he's the Savior of all men in the sense that his blood paid the price that is sufficient for, for everyone. Um, now, the context in First Timothy here is very interesting. We read in the beginning of this verse that uh, it is for this we labor and strive. For what do they labor and strive? Well, it's to resist false teaching and to hold to the truth and the godliness that springs from truth, just like Second Peter 2. That's exactly what we're talking about here. So take a look at uh, more of the context in 1 Timothy 4, the false teachers are forbidding godly pleasures. In 2 Peter 2, the false teachers are promoting ungodly physical pleasures. So both are wrong. We're warned in both cases. Let's read in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. In pointing these things out to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. May it be so with us. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For, the bo for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, have you ever had an attitude that says, in what way and to what extent can I indulge my sinful nature without me feeling too guilty about it or getting God too angry? Now, we don't usually probably wake up in the morning and have that as our first thought. Okay, today, what can I do that I can get away with, right? 
Um, but unconsciously, maybe we can fall into functioning that way. Sometimes it's good to think, okay, what are my unconscious think, thinking that's pushing me in the direction I'm seeming to be going? Put words to it, and then you say, whoa, that's, I don't want to be doing that. Um, well, let's contrast that with the attitude in James 1.17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. We are to enjoy pleasurable things as gifts from a good God who wants to share fellowship with us uh, in the enjoyment of the gifts that, that he gives us. Imagine, for example, your family is sitting around a beautiful meal. Everyone loves this food, and you're all enjoying it and having just a great time and fellowship and joy together of this good gift that God has provided for you. Um, no selfishness and greediness present at the table at dessert time. We're not arm wrestling for the biggest cookie, you know, who can sneak in there and I, I, I feel like I have to have the biggest piece of pie. Um, none of that. No greediness. And on the other hand, there's no gratuitous self-sacrifice and self-abasement. Oh, I gave you the biggest cookie, and I'm only going to tell you about it after you ate it. And <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, no, it's... Everybody's enjoying this together and just having a good time of uh, enjoying God's good gifts, all right? That's supposed to be the way things are. And with a sin nature, that's not natural. Um, God wants to rejoice with us in the gifts he's given to us. We're not supposed to feel guilty for good things that he gives us that he wants us to enjoy. On the other hand, we are supposed to feel guilty for indulging our sinful nature and our flesh. Um, and so that's, I mean, we just read in, in 1 Timothy 4, uh, 3 to 5, about foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything, which I think bacon fits in there. That so glad we can eat bacon now, that we're not under the law. But for, <laughs> for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if, if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. So that's a um, sense. Imagine that meal again. If you're having the selfish attitude, then you're not enjoying, you're sinning eating this great meal that God provided. But if you're having the kind of attitude that God wants you to have, then you're enjoying it and thanking him for it. To the pure, all things are pure. This is a good thing, a pure joy. Now, I think it's not accurate to think of the heresies of legalism and license as we see um, these different contrasts. We saw in Second Peter 2, we see the license. Hey, let's go do all these terrible sins. Um, and legalism and these other passages of, hey, you can't even get married, you can't eat these foods. It can be tempting to think of them as extremes and so moderation must be the righteous way to live. Well, that's, I don't think, true either. Moderation can fall into the exact same trap that both of the extremes fall into, and that is all of them are focusing on physical pleasure. That's not where the focus is supposed to be in our lives. We're not supposed to be waking up thinking about how we're going to indulge our sinful nature. Um, so if focusing on this physical is the wrong way to be focusing. What should we be focusing on? 
Well, we can go back to chapter uh, 1 of Second Peter and get a good list there. Um, since we went over that last week, I'll just mention another scripture here, 2 Corinthians four sixteen to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, which, by the way, um, as that happens, it gets harder and harder to enjoy the physical pleasures that are out there. As our, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Lots of scripture in the New Testament that hammers this point, and um, I guess I tend to hammer it a lot too. Um, I'm hoping I'm in line with Peter here, who is wanting to stir us up by way of reminder. Um, these are things we know. Focusing on the, not the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. Focusing on the eternal, not on the temporal. We will skip some other passages dealing with that, since it is time for lunch here. Okay, so just in conclusion here, in Second Peter 2, we need to beware of the false teaching that can come, come into the church, come into our lives and other areas. Beware of false teaching and the behavior that it leads to. Grow in knowing and becoming like Christ. That's really the antidote to falling into these temptations. And I think underlying all of that is to remember to keep our focus on Christ himself. His glory is the point of our lives. If we can really get hold of that, that, would, that will really help us tremendously. His glory is the point of our lives. So I'm going to just conclude by reading the very last couple verses in this book because it seems to me to be a great summary of everything that I think we're trying to understand here in Second Peter 2. Second Peter 3, verses 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand... Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Lord Jesus, we do want to see you glorified, and we recognize that in us there's some of the parts of us that just doesn't care, our old nature. Lord, we want to want to see you glorified. We want to know you, and we thank you, Lord, for what you have done in sacrificing yourself for the joy set before you to bring us to yourself, and that we will, we know what our end is. Thank you for the great, magnificent, magnificent promises. Lord, help us, help us to remember to focus on you. Thank you for Second Peter, and thank you for stirring us up by way of reminder of these truths. Amen.